This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 90. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and today we are discussing four new Shonen Jump Simulpubs that have started up this summer, including the long-awaited return of Masashi Kishimoto, creator of Naruto, to the magazine. We're talking about his new series, Samurai 8. But we also have those three other series to talk about, too, and I think that'll be an interesting discussion. But before we get to those, we have a little bit of news we want to talk about, just so we can avoid another news-only episode at the end of the month. Another not-so-big news roundup. Let's cover a couple short news stories this month, uh, this episode and starting off, why don't we talk about a story that is related to Naruto, related to Shonen Jump even, because it's regarding a series that has been currently serialized in Jump that is moving to a different magazine. Yeah, so uh, Boruto uh, in particular is going to be moving from Shonen Jump to V-Jump, uh, which is basically uh, Shueisha's like, video game magazine. I believe it's the same magazine that uh, Dragon Ball Super runs in, if I'm not mistaken. So so the next chapter will be running in the September issue of V-Jump on July 20th, uh, because that's just how issues of V-Jump work, I guess. But no, yeah, so uh, it just, just really, it's really interesting seeing a lot of these uh, jump tiles moving to different magazines, but I'm I'm sure that's mostly because they, they want to make they want to make room in the in the jump lineup for all these new series we're going to be talking about today. So I guess it's not that surprising. They're making room for one new Kishimoto series by removing another. I do think that they expect Samurai 8 to last a good while to stick around. So naturally, they are giving up Boruto space for it and moving Boruto to another magazine so that there are not two works by the same author in the same magazine. But perhaps there's also another reason. Perhaps they think that scheduling the production of the Boruto manga will be easier if they move it to V-Jump and it switches to a new bi-monthly schedule. So one chapter every two months. So I am personally sad to see that the story will be released at a slower pace now. But it's been at a good place, and I can understand definitely wanting to make more space in the magazine for new series and new one-shots and the like uh, for uh, in issues that, you know, Boruto would take up that space. But let's also talk about another interesting serialization bit of news regarding a franchise related to Naruto insofar their anime versions air... Back to back in Japan, let's talk about Pokemon, because Pokemon is getting a new manga adaptation of one of its specials, and that special is the Mewtwo Return special from 2000, the sequel to the first Pokemon film, Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, the special that was all about Ash meeting up with Mewtwo again in Johto and fending off Giovanni's ambition to recapture Mewtwo and the clones. It's a pretty nice story. It has a good ending in that Mewtwo does not erase Ash and Friends' memories 
that time. It also has Domino, who is a cool one-shot character that really should have appeared more, as all the miscellaneous Team Rocket members that show up in the anime really should do. Like Wendy from HR from that one episode in Master Quest. But, alas, I am very interested to see that they are making a manga adaptation of this special. I quite enjoy that special, and it's quite interesting that they're waited basically 20 years to make a manga version of it. And hopefully it comes out over here, licensed by Viz and the like. I would definitely be curious to see if they expand on the tale, if they keep it the same. It's kind of interesting to see what kind of take they could have on a special that's like 20 years old at this point. But moving on, we've got a licensing announcement from Cross Infinite World as they have licensed Now Tamaki and illustrator Niusuo's Labyrinth Angel light novel series, which will be translated by Jackie McClure. And this series is about the envied Harris of a corporation the Sujikawa Corporation, named Satsuki, and she's a high school heiress. She goes to a high school for the rich and pampered, and the girls all around her worship the ground she walks on. Her father's business partners suck up to her. Her parents act like they aren't scared of her. But Satsuki's privy to all the horrible things people think about her because she's an esper, and she has the power of telepathy and telekinesis at her fingertips, and she's constantly fighting to hold herself back, to not lose control, and do something unthinkable again? Implying that she has done this before? Has she had a carry-like incident in her past? Hmm. But anyway, she does have one person who knows her secret. Her childhood assassin turned butler, uh, who is basically, you know, the one person who knows that she is an esper. But unfortunately, her father demands she marries one of five potential suitors, and Sasuke despairs at the emotion their attention elicits compared to the taboo passion she harbors for her butler assassin childhood friend and unfortunately if things weren't bad enough her suitors begin mysteriously dying just as one of them threatens to expose her darkest secrets to the world so, Sasuke must solve these murders which into at her side but can she do it without becoming a monster? So, this series, as you read on in the synopsis, it becomes increasingly more interesting the more layers you add on to it. It's not just a reverse harem series about this girl. It's not just a series where this rich girl is in love with her butler's childhood friend. It's like, oh no, the classism. Oh no, we're from two different worlds. No, no, it's a murder mystery series. She's gonna have to solve some murders. She's gonna have to uncover a culprit and she has to fight back her own instincts to destroy with her psychic powers. So this actually has a quite interesting premise. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes to unexpected places that even the synopsis doesn't hint to. So definitely color me intrigued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds interesting enough. Mm-hmm. But we've got a big industry shakeup to talk about next because Elliot Advisors has bought Barnes & Noble for about $683 million. 
Elliot Advisors is a affiliate of the Elliot Management Corporation. Uh, they or had previously acquired the largest bookstore in the UK, the Waterstones. And the CEO of Waterstones, James Daunt, is going to become the new CEO of Barnes & Noble following this acquisition and will hold both titles concurrently, though Barnes & Noble and Waterstones will continue to operate independently. It's also stated that Elliot has assumed any debt by Barnes & Noble, which tells me that Barnes & Noble might not have been in a good shape, which leads to, into why they have been bought out by another company. But yes, it seems that you know, this has been an ongoing thing since October 2018. They've been, you know, reviewing bids to buy the company. You know, Barnes & Nobles is a large bookstore chain. They've got 627 locations across the states. Uh, I definitely visit mine in my local mall very frequently. You know, it is very concerning that it's been bought out by this big corporation. Hopefully there won't be too many big changes. But we will see. The current founder and chairman... Leonard Riggio has stepped down, so we will see how Barnes & Noble may change in the future under this new management. But this definitely is significant, as Barnes & Noble is one of the largest bookstore chains in the country, and a very heavy retailer of manga, probably the biggest bookstore change, uh, chain that you can visit and find a reliably sizable manga section. So hopefully that does not change under this new ownership. Hopefully they do not uh, ship priorities and make it harder to buy manga at Barnes & Nobles. But um, we're going to move on to the rest of our news here. Just a couple of news pieces here and there. Um, we have some uh, circulation numbers coming from the Japan Magazine Publishers Association, or JIMPA, as I'm going to call them from now on. Uh, they have revealed this past week here at the time of this recording circulation numbers from January through March of 2019. For comparison, we also have access to circulation numbers for different magazines from uh, October through December 2018 to kind of look at here as well. Apparently, a monthly Shonen series is the only magazine listed amongst all these different magazines that have, that have seen a increase in circulation numbers. Uh, every other magazine listed has decreased, unfortunately, which uh, which I think is kind of interesting. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll just basically go to the two magazines I'm kind of the most interested in. And I think we're both the most interested in here. Uh, Weekly Shonen Jump, in particular, which had a circulation of over 1,706,000 copies from October to December 2018, now has a circulation of 1,692,000 from uh, the first three months of this year here. So I'd say that's a, that's a, a slight decrease, but it's still over the million mark, which I think is good. And then we have uh, Weekly Shonen Sunday here, which previously had a circulation of 296,250 copies, uh, now down to 277,500 copies. Um, so Shonen Sunday just continually cannot catch a break, and I feel really sorry for them. Uh, but I guess, uh, Lum, was there any, were there any other like statistics here that you wanted to uh, kind of focus on or any other thoughts you wanted to kind of add in here? 
I don't think it's that much of a surprise that print sales continue to decline because the manga industry is increasingly emphasizing digital. We are seeing more people shift to digital. So to me, it's not a surprise that the numbers continue to decline. And we've reported on this information before. We, you know, regularly get these reports that, you know, circulation numbers are declining for magazines across the board. That just seems to be the state that the industry is and is going in, which is why digital platforms, the digital Shonen Jump Manga Plus, are going to be the kind of ventures you'll be seeing more of, I think, and will be increasingly emphasized. I don't think print magazines will ever go away entirely, especially not Shonen Jump, which is an institution, basically. But I don't think that uh, just looking at this print decline is telling the entire story because, again, there are digital editions that are still being sold. So could the losses incurred by losing these print circulation numbers be offset by an increase in digital subscriptions? That is information I think we'll need to get the full picture of this. But yes, it really does seem that circulation is down across the board. So I don't think that's too much of something to be worried about. It's just a trend that we need to keep aware of that we're living in an increasingly digital world. One statistic that I do find interesting is just the sheer gap in Shonen Jump's readership to any other magazine, because it has doubled the readership of the next highest circulated magazine, which is Weekly Shonen Magazine, which has a circulation of 715,000 copies less than half of Jump, so I think that really just goes to show you, like, the sheer gap. And in general, I do find it interesting that Shonen magazines uh, do by far the biggest circulation numbers. There are only a few uh, singing magazines that are kind of, like, up there in terms of hundreds of thousands of circulation numbers. I find it quite, you know, sad a little bit disappointing that, you know, it seems that Shoujo and Jose magazines don't have nearly as high peaks in terms of circulation as the Shonen Insane series do. The highest circulated Shoujo magazine is Shao with 365,000 copies, which is quite a big sum, but when you compare that to even Shonen magazine, that is... Less that is about half of what that uh, magazine does. It is well, it does better than Sunday. So there, that is something uh, there, I suppose. But you know, the sheer gap is quite interesting to me. I'm looking over the numbers for all these magazines, and like I think Shonen Jump and Weekly Shonen Magazine, as far as I could tell from my quick skim, are literally the only two magazines listed in any category here whose uh, circulation numbers exceed over 500,000. Well, uh, actually, Monthly Koro Koro Comics has a circulation of 623,000. So that is a third. But yes, uh, most magazines fall much short of that. Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, I, I like... I, and you, you kind of went over it, and I, I understand why that is, but it's like... I don't know. I just find it really interesting that like most of these magazines don't even reach that amount. And it's also it's still really interesting that only one of these magazines have seen an increase in circulation. I'd I'd really like to know why that is. 
I think that's quite the interesting story is why is Shonen Serious getting an increase in subscriptions, an increase in circulation when the general trend is downward for print magazines? That is quite curious to me. I think that it is because of the series in the magazine. I wouldn't be surprised if a huge reason for that increase is readers getting into that time I got reincarnated as a slime where the manga adaptation runs in Shonen Serious. That series we saw... The manga uh, on the last Oricon list we recovered in the last episode, that had a huge spike in sales. It was one of the top 10 selling for the first uh, half of 2019. I wouldn't be surprised if that also drew readers not just to buy the Tonkoban of that series, but to pick up Shonen Serious to keep up with new chapters of that series. Yeah, that that's literally the only reason I could think of as to why they've had that increase. Otherwise, I'm I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. But it is quite a substantial increase for them, an increase of over 5,000 copies. So that is quite impressive if it truly is contingent on the success of one series' rise in popularity. That is quite a feat. Um, but I guess we should move on to some Anime Expo news. Indeed, and we have a lot of exciting things to announce for Anime Expo, mainly some exciting guests that will be attending Anime Expo. And the big one is, of course, Akira creator Katsuhiro Otomo, who will attend the convention as a guest. He will have his own panel. I wouldn't be surprised if there be some announcements regarding the Akira film Warner Brothers is doing. That is something very much to look forward to, I think. Maybe maybe there'll be some announcements for some other works from Otomo, maybe, possibly, I hope so. Perhaps. There will also be uh, Yoshiyuki Sadamoto uh, at the convention. Yoshiyuki uh, Sadamoto is a manga artist who has worked at Akita Publishing. He was also the co-founder of Gainax and worked as a character designer for Royal Space Force and Nadia's Secret of the Blue Water. And he also drew the character designs of Neon Genesis Evangelion as well. So that's another huge get for Anime Expo. Another really exciting mangaka guest that they will be having over there. And in addition to them, Ranjin Murata will also appear at Anime Expo and uh, will be hosted by ADK Emotions. And yeah, Ranj Murata is also a uh, mangaka who recently had uh, one of his books put over here by Denpa and is also well known as a prolific illustrator and character designer for several series like Blue Submarine Number no. 6, Sass Exile, Salty Ray, uh, The Attack on Titan, Harsh Mistress of the City novels. So there are some really cool guests that are going to be attending Anime Expo. But that's not all, because there's going to be a really cool event screening at Anime Expo as well. Oh yeah, this is um, this is interesting to say the least. So, uh, CJ Forty Plex and Anime Expo have announced recently that the first annual Forty X Anime Film Fest will be held at this year's convention at at the Regal LA Live uh, from July third to the fourth. Uh, the event it will be including 40x screenings of Detective Conan Zero the Enforcer, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Double O, the movie Awakening of the Trailblazer, and Mobile Suit Gundam NT. In particular, a 30-minute Q&A panel 
uh, will follow the screening of Mobile Suit Gundam NT at 2 p.m. on July 4th. Uh, script writer Harutoshi Fukui and English voice cast members uh, Griffin uh, Putu. Pautu, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, and I, I apologize. Uh, the voice of Jonah Basta in particular, as well as Erika Ishii, the voice of Michelle Luio, will be participating in the panel, and this event will mark the 40th anniversary of the Gundam anime series in particular. And uh, apparently, so just to list more screenings here, uh, Detective Conan Zero the Enforcer uh, will be screening on July 3rd at 7.30 p.m., uh, Mobile Suit Gundam 00 the movie uh, will be screening on July 3rd at 10:20 p.m. and uh, all of all screenings will be free with regular admission to the convention, but tickets will be required. Uh, and for those who might not know what 40x screenings are, from from what I hear, they're basically like interactive screenings almost that they're supposed to like sort of mimic the like mimic certain events that happen in a movie like. Um, I, I've, I've heard of people going to screenings for, uh, these types of screenings for stuff like, uh, for like the latest Avengers movies and everything. And they include like effects such as, uh, motion synchronized seats, fog, wind, rain, vibrations, and scents. And, uh, these screenings are available in 644 locations worldwide, including 21 locations in the United States. So there's, there's a few of them out there. But uh, these are definitely very special kinds of interactive screenings that I've never been to myself, but uh, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to go to one at least at least once. Um, out of everything else, like it kind of blows my mind that that a Detective Conan movie is being screened in the U.S. I don't think that's ever happened before, and I'm really happy to hear that. And I mean, uh, we won't really go into it here, but like. You know, it, like I've I've been hearing rumblings of like Bang Zoom possibly recording a dub for a Detective Conan movie for a while, and uh, if my information is correct, uh, I'm not going to say where, but like I've seen that there there is a dub for the movie just kind of out there in the ether. Um, so apparently, it, it it like a dub for this movie exists. I know that for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this leads to more theatrical screenings for Conan movies in particular. I really want this to do well. I mean, I'm, I'm also happy for, for Gundam fans as well. Like, I, I can only imagine a 40X screening of, of a Gundam feature film being a pretty wild ride, if anything else. Yeah, NT definitely has a lot of exciting action moments that I'm sure will, uh, cause the sheet the seats to jiggle around and uh, have air blasting in your face and all of that stuff. Though I will say that uh, as far as Gundam fans go in terms of like their opinions on these two movies that will be screening uh, at this film fest, they weren't, they aren't the biggest fans of uh, NT or Awakening of the Trailblazer. Uh, so, you know, these aren't necessarily the best movie choices they could have chosen. Uh, for what it's worth, I really liked NT when it streamed earlier this year. I enjoyed it, but uh, I know a lot of people I saw on Twitter were like, what was this? This was confusing. You need to know all this Gundam lore and you need to have seen Unicorn to understand this. It's not the most accessible. Oh, no. Far from it. <laughs> and uh, I, 
Awakening of the Trailblazer is the same way. It's like the conclusion movie to Gundam Double O. So these are really for the diehard Gundam fans. It's kind of interesting that this line of films has two Gundam films. I feel like there should be a little diversity there. But regardless, Zero the Enforcer truly is a big thing. I was so excited when this was revealed, when this was announced, because never in my heart of hearts could I have imagined that a Coden movie would be theatrically screen in the U.S., we did have a tweet from TMS where they teased that, hey, international fans, look forward to Conan movie screenings coming over. Look forward to maybe seeing Zero the Enforcer in your country. But never could I have expected that Conan would make its way to the U.S. in theatrical form. But I'm not totally surprised that Zero with the Enforcer is the film that they are taking this chance with. That this is going to be the first film that they're going to be trying to screen in the U.S. Now, obviously, this is like a one-time, one-day release. But perhaps it's going to be like a trial run for interest for perhaps a later limited theatrical release across theaters in the United States. Because Zero the Enforcer is Detective Conan's highest-grossing a film to date. It made over $100,000 in box office gross, and it did incredibly well internationally, in China in particular, China and South Korea. So, this is definitely a movie that, uh, you know, has really had a lot of success, and I'm sure that uh, TMS is eyeing maybe, maybe we could achieve some numbers in the United States if we did so well in China, too. So, I'm just glad that I will have the chance to see this on the big screen, which is incredible. I do suspect it will be the dub, because, again, it has been made, it is been spread out there on the internet. I expect that they made it for uh, showing in English-speaking territories, so uh, it would make sense for them to show it here at AX. And definitely, it's going to be an exciting time. I eagerly anticipate when the registration to get tickets for the film will be open, and then, because as soon as it does, Relord and I are snatching up tickets. I know that we've already made plans with Bomber and Jekka to see that screening we're all excited for it so this is a true treat for conan fans able to attend anime expo and i am very excited for it oh yeah and you can guarantee also that like if this gets a wider release that uh doc and i over at uh one podcast prevails are definitely going to be seeing this in theaters for sure so mm-hmm Definitely, V-Lord and I will want to record an ad movies on it, too. And hopefully with Bomber and Jekka, that would be amazing. But, yeah. So, Conan Zero the Enforcer, something to look forward to. Definitely going to be an early highlight. A great way to kickstart uh, Anime Expo this year. Uh, but before we move on to our Jumpstart news, I do want to mention just one more guest that I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, the light novel author, the creator of Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon, Fujino Omori, is going to be attending AX this year. 
Um, they will be attending a panel that will be premiering the first episode of the highly anticipated second season of Is It Wrong to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon? There will also, uh, you know, be signing sessions, you know, for autographs all throughout the weekend as well. And uh, this has all come courtesy of Bookwalker. And according to V-Lord, Bookwalker does a really good job with their ticketing system for autographs and, you know, being very well organized with that. So... Uh, I think you, if you are hoping to seek an autograph from Amori, you will have a, a pretty decent time in order, in in terms of like being able to get it, get the uh, get in line or get your tickets without too much hassle or confusion, as can often be the case uh, in these highly anticipated, you know, events that require tickets for a limited number of entries of. Uh, and uh you know participants but yeah just another great guest coming to anime expo and surely in the weeks to come there'll be even more announcements even more revelations there's been rumblings that the premiere of dr stone will be shown in anime expo nothing confirmed but yonko has leaked it so high speculation on lots lots more that uh is sure to be announced closer to anime expo and we will uh keep you updated keep you reported in uh, future episodes probably about that too mm. and once again i am extremely jealous that you're going to be doing all these cool things and i guess i'm just going to have to live vicariously through all you guys on twitter <laughs> hopefully one day you'll be able to make it out there and join us i would like to go at least one year and then probably never again because i don't know if i could <laughs> take being in uh i don't think i could take being in such a crowded area more than like once every couple of years yeah i think it's definitely a uh experience you should do once but afterwards i think I, I go for the people but like for the convention itself i i think you do it once and you know, you you get a lot out of it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but man, we have a lot of new series to talk about. We do. We got four. It's a pretty big round. One of the bigger rounds that we've had in a while. Usually, we've got two or three, but we got four this time, no doubt, because the first series up on the docket for us to talk about, Samurai Eight, was highly anticipated, and know that they've been planning to have this out for a while. We know they've been working on it for a while. So surely they've primed it for that spring release for, you know, the start at this moment with the serialization around. So they timed it pretty well. And of course, Samurai 8, The Tale of Hachimaru, comes to us courtesy of the pen of Masashi Kishimoto. He's writing the series, not drawing it this time. The art is going to be provided by Akira Okubo, who is a longtime assistant of Kishimoto. And definitely, when you read the series, you can tell that a lot of the gorgeous detailed backgrounds in Naruto, uh, it is highly, highly likely that... Okubo was a huge part in drinking like the world of Naruto in terms of the background, especially in later volumes to life. Oh yeah, for sure. Okubo is a great, great approximation of Masashi Kishimoto's art style. Uh, outside of a few things in terms of the way he draws characters, in terms of like the way he draws panels, backgrounds, like you would not be able to tell the art style of Samurai Eight of uh, Okubo and of Kishimoto apart. They are extremely similar, even much more so than Ikimoto, the artist of Boruto. So what is, what is Samurai 8 actually about? Because there, um, the, 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 there is a lot we could go into. 
Samurai 8 has quite the complicated premise. It has a lot of lore and world building up front, and it's heavily rooted in Buddhist mythology. Basically, there are samurai who are assigned to protect the galaxy. Samurai are chosen as such by warrior gods for being the most elite of Bushi who are just sword-wielding warriors who protect the planet and princesses, you know. They just are protectors and the best of the Bushi are become samurai by warrior gods and those gods give them locker bars which are like stars left behind by the gods that allow people to transform their bodies into cyborg bodies which have like a key inside that will you know allow them to activate their powers and stuff and they give them superpowers like regeneration and all that so the premise of the series like the goal of the series is that uh, the god Fudo Mio'o, who in Buddhist mythology is the immovable wisdom king, uh, the guardian of Buddhism, uh, you know, one of the five big deities of Buddhism, who is well known for, you know, having being associated with flames of fire, which are meant to represent burning away all material desires. And there's a lot of lore you can go into with a uh, figure of Fudo Myo'o. But basically, as far as this series has presented so far, Myo'o uh, once used power uh, contained in something called Pandora's Box. So we're having kind of a emerging mythologies here. I know Kishimoto really does like to play with that kind of stuff. But yeah, he, he used some power that he sealed in Pandora's Box to once save the stars... Uh, and there are seven keys that open the box, and the samurai need to collect these seven keys in order to open the box, in order to help save the galaxy from destruction. And I guess the grand protector, like I guess the architect of all these samurai, you know, he they assign Daruma, who is like this lucky cat-looking uh, samurai, to go out and seek these seven keys. And uh, collect them in order to, like, open Pandora's box. But our protagonist's name is Hachimaru. And I'm sure there's significance to the eight in his title. He might be the eight key. They might be having to go around collecting some keys. And maybe he's called Hachimaru because he's the eight key. Who knows? But anyway, Hachimaru starts the series basically as kind of a invalid like he's uh stuck attached to a life uh support device which is like this giant mechanical thing that is like attached to him there's like all these wires he can't move at all because it's like this big device attached to various points throughout his back so all he can do is really play games all day and of course he has like a very emaciated body, he has cyborg limbs. He's very upbeat and enthusiastic and energetic, but you know, uh, he's of course very sad because he can't go out and explore the world. He can't go outside and really wants to be a bushi, a, you know, a samurai. He wants to be like basically the opposite of himself, someone who can, you know, protect people, someone who can, you know, fight with courage and honor and be strong. But, you know, of course, with his condition, it's just a dream for him and he doesn't think it'll be reality. 
But, you know, he spends his days with his dad, who's, you know, a very supportive parent, basically built a life support device that he's attached to, you know, trying to keep him alive. And he also has, like, this dog who meows like a cat. And they he makes the best of it. You know, he has a very contentious relationship with his dad because, you know, he does resent his dad for, like, holding him back. Like, he, he thinks that his dad could make, like, a more portable life preservation device that allow him to go outside and isn't for some reason. You know, he's very, very bitter. Jumping ahead here real quick, um, it, it broke my heart a little later on when... Hachimaru basically tells his dad, like, hey, you know, you could have you could have finished building this thing that would have helped me go outside, but you didn't because you didn't want me to explore the world and leave your site or whatever, just being a total brat. And that, that kind of broke my heart a little bit. It's a good relationship between the two. I do really feel it that the dad does care for Hachimaru, but I also understand Hachimaru's resentment because yeah. definitely the dad's keeping secrets from him. He knows more than he's letting on. He is definitely trying to hold Hachimaru back for some reason, for his own safety, for the universe's safety. Who knows? There's definitely more mysteries behind this character. Like, there's a cold open introduction that shows an as of yet unnamed samurai with a scar over their left eye who has has a key holder, which is like a lying dog creature that is very, very similar to what uh, Hachimaru's pet Hayataro transforms into once it becomes a key holder. So uh, there's a definite mystery there. How is Hayataro related to the dog lion that's the key holder of this samurai? Uh, what is the samurai's relationship to uh Hachimaru, you know, unanswered questions, mystery, you know, but that, that'll definitely be revealed down the line. But basically, uh Dharma crashes down on the planet that Hachimaru is on and Hachimaru encounters Dharma. While meanwhile, his dad has gone off to retrieve a locker ball, which as mentioned before, transforms people into cyborgs, into samurai. Basically, things come to a point where Hachimaru is kind of going to be killed by an evil Bushi who, you know, wants to become a cyborg for evil means and all that stuff. Like, because Hachimaru inside of him has, like, one of the the keys that will, like, uh, you know, help transform the key holder, you know, so that the, the guy can, like, it can activate the locker ball and all that stuff. But anyway, the evil samurai gives Hachimaru the choice to kill himself. And, you know, if he does, he'll he'll spare his father's life. And, uh, you know, it shows a, it's a great moment where, like, uh, you know, it tugs at your heartstrings that, like, Hachimaru is willing to sacrifice himself for his dad. Because, you know, even though he fights with him all the time, you know, he really does love him. But, you know, instead of uh, killing him... Like, taking out, uh, you know, his heart and all that. It transforms uh, Hachimaru uh, into a samurai, you know, gives him the cyborg body and stuff. He's, you know, no longer needs the life support system because he's all up and functional uh, with, like, a body that can regenerate and stuff. Uh, It also transforms, you know, Hayataro. Hayataro, uh, you know, had been, like, horribly beaten uh, nearly killed by the evil samurai too, and but now, now thanks to this power, like Hayataro has transformed into like the lion dog form thing. But yeah, basically, you know, Hachimaru becomes the samurai. He beats the evil samurai, and then from there, you know, uh, further chapters have expanded on 
the character a bit. You know, Hajimaru go- is able to go out in the world, make a friend in Nanashi, who is a non-binary character, which is cool to see. Also very similar to Hayataro in that they are friendless, they are kept inside and all that, and they don't think that they can, like, go out into the world and make more of themselves. But, like, Hayataro, like, basically allows, uh, basically inspires them to, like take action and to like you know really pursue the happiness they want which is cool and then uh you know eventually daroma proposes to hachimaro you know for him to uh, tag along with him as uh, his disciple you know uh, join him on his journey you know learn the pact of the samurai all that stuff, you know, so Kachimaru becomes Dharma's disciple, and then from there, like, they're going off on the journey and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot that has already happened in the short amount of chapters, and uh, there's a lot of lore, a lot of details that I I have tried to kind of gloss over as best as possible. I went a little more depth in the first chapter, but basically, there is so much of this series already that is very overwhelming in terms of the things you have to remember to keep up with like with what the story is like at the like all this mythological stuff there's just so much shown at you in that first chapter that it really does like kind of become distracting and i do i did kind of feel lost as the series has gone on and has not focused on that deeper world lore stuff and focused more on character like throughout the chapter without that stuff like then it's become a lot more easy to digest and uh, get behind in terms of like uh empathizing and connecting with characters and getting interested in the story just on a the simple level of this kid like going out into the world uh learning the pat of the samurai you know achieving like some sort of grander destiny that he has in this universe and the the deeper mystery of like who Achimaru is why was his father so protective of him uh and all that stuff yeah there there's there's obviously a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we're we're not privy to as of yet that I'm sure we'll learn you know, later as we move forward with the story. But yeah, I totally agree that like, it's, it's, I, I'm very conflicted because I'm really enjoying this so far and I'm definitely going to be keeping up with this. But like, I do agree at the same time between a lot of the lore stuff and like, and, and even like the art, cause, uh, we, we were kind of talking about this, like, on our Patreon bonus episode about that time I got reincarnated at Yamcha, patreon.com slash, uh, slash manga mavericks. Go check it out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we were kind of talking a little bit over there about how, like, uh, about the art for Samurai 8 in particular, because I think Maxi brought up about how, how cluttered it could be sometimes. And, like, boy, he wasn't kidding. Um, I, like, even, even though he had, like, told us about, told me about it ahead of time, like, I kind of wasn't expecting it. Like, it's it's the same problem that we said that, like, Oda has, where it's, like, there's so much detail going on at once in, like, almost every panel that it's, like, it's really hard to figure out, like, what your eyes should be focusing on. Yeah, there are several times reading this where I can't tell what's going on. It's just too much movement, too many details. Like, characters get lost in the background because there are just too many lines. There's just too much clutter in these panels. And so not only am I just distracted 
by just how much line work there is, just how cramped these panels are. It isn't held by the fact that the story, especially in that first chapter, is just so dense with all these things that you're trying to keep up with. Like, before, I was trying to explain why the bad guy was going after, like, Hayataro, and I was trying to strain to remember, like, what the reason was. And it's because of the samurai soul thing that hides a samurai's true weapon, which, like, I completely forgot about. Like, there's just so many details in this series that it's like i i already it's only five weeks old but there's so much just from the first chapter alone that has kind of fallen out because there's just too much to remember at this point like i think you really got to keep it simple yeah like there's there's so much to remember between like all, all, all the like objects they're after and like all of the all the stuff they're trying to collect and all the all the details about like whatever's going on with Hachimaru and his father behind the scenes and whatever that's going to lead up to like there there's there's too there's too much to keep track of honestly I completely forgot that Hachimaru is supposed to be one of the keys that there's some significance that Dharma has been on this quest for eight times like there's just so many little things that are mentioned in this story that I'm like if I don't like I you really need to like keep notes as you're reading every chapter and refer to them as you're reading the next chapter because there's just so much thrown at you. We we could like if someone out there wanted to do a podcast about uh, about Samurai Eight and dedicate a dedicate like an episode per chapter, they could because there's so there's so much to keep track of and there's so much to talk about every chapter just with just with those lore details alone. I mean, they really should because already the series has so many interesting Japanese culture connections in terms of its connections to Buddhism and this emphasis on feudal Myo'o. They name dropped another one of the wisdom kings of Buddhism, uh, Kongo Yasha. So presumably all of the five guardian wisdom kings in Buddhism are going to be like a thing in the series. So there's just so much that Kishimoto is drawing from in terms of you know, Buddhist mythology, in addition to all these sci-fi elements and additional details that he's built into this world. So it's like a really well-realized world. It's just that we're being introduced to it too fast and we're given, like, too much information up front. Like, we really needed to start out a lot smaller. Like, with Naruto, like, we just got the idea that Naruto went to a school for ninjas. He was a class clown. No one liked him. And they resented him on some level because, you know, he has a nine-tailed fox inside him. And all, you know, it was very much simpler, this, that story in the first chapter, than compared to Samurai 8, which is setting up so many details and so much foreshadowing. Like, no, wait, no, the first chapter of Naruto, you know, there was obviously, obviously the whole idea that the four Tokage was Naruto's dad and all that stuff. Like, obviously, there were some ideas like that, you know, that were being foreshadowed in the first chapter, but not to this extent with Samurai, where there's like a, a hundred things being set up all at once. And I'm like, let me focus on the characters first. I'm like, what's there in terms of character moments, in terms of like, you know, genuine, heartfelt, emotional core? You know, it is solid, but there's just so much distracting from that right now. It feels like Kishimoto really wants to focus on both at the same time. Like, he really wants to develop all these characters, but he also wants to, like, 
He also wants to give you like his 100 page essay on this world that he's created. And, but but all that info at the same time is really overwhelming, which is why I think I agree with you on, on the Naruto comparison where it was like, you know, Naruto in the beginning, you're, you're meant to like just kind of get to know these characters first and then the world second, which I think is, I think is the way to go. But unfortunately, we don't have that separation here where we're kind of, we're kind of having to learn about both at once. Yeah. Most definitely. I mean, otherwise, I'm still really enjoying it. Like, I, I, I was, I was reading everything to get ready for the show today, and like, a- after I read the first chapter of Hachimaru, of Hachimaru, like, you know, I was like, okay, I should probably, I should probably get 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 to like sampling the other series, so so that way I at least know like what to talk about today. But then it was like, uh, but I really want to keep going with Hachimaru. Like, it was kind of hard to put down, honestly. It's the best of these four series, for sure. Like, it has the most legs. It's clearly the most thought out. It's clearly the one that Jump themselves are definitely the most uh, confident in. They're, I'm sure they're the most invested in this one. Like, they're they're not gonna they're not gonna let this go after like 17 chapters. I'm sure. Yeah, it's by an established creator, the artist behind where they're big hit makers. And they gave that first chapter like 70 pages, like a lot of space to tell that story. So like clearly they are expecting it to be big and I can fully expect it to be big. I think that the series, you know, it is very interesting. I do enjoy it more with each chapter the more we get to know these characters. So I am quite interested in it. I still really wish that it would kind of slowed down in some areas you know not throw so much new ideas in terms of world building and lore at you every chapter Uh, not try and put so much detail in every panel uh, and every page of the manga like there are times where it's just too hard to read and i'm i have to go back a couple pages to figure out what's going on in the most recent chapter chapter five there's this part where they come across these like giant guardians who are like protecting some sort of gate and these stone statues start moving and attacking them at first i was like confused what was happening because the stone statue creatures they kind of blended in with the background to me because there was such so many details i didn't even register at first that like what was happening that these these two stone statues were in this establishing shot that they were even moving the subsequent panels where the characters were in relationship to them i couldn't figure that out at first i had to like go back and like really study the panels and then like like really try and figure out where people were and who was who in this and when reading the sequence so i think this is really damaging it as an action comic that like there's just so much going on that it is hard to read and hard to follow the action i will say that i think this would be a beautiful looking series uh done in anime and oh my god it's animated really well Uh, definitely with color the readability issue would not nearly be as much of a problem as it is in a black and white comic with relatively little shading which is, you know, uh, with the level of detail of this art, I don't see how you could do any more complicated shading and keep up this level. But Yeah, that, that's kind of my problem, too, is that, like, almost everything is white. 
and like yeah, yeah like, like you said there there's 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 not enough shading to where like it, it's it's hard for me to differentiate uh one object from another especially especially in like w- when you get those kind of shots of like uh the village or whatever the hachimaru lives near and whatnot like i that spread looks so great but if you were to tell me to like look for a particular detail whatever that may be like i'd be I'd be hard pressed to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a lot to take in at once, but like, I but I I I feel like I have to admire Kishimoto for like because I don't remember when we started hearing about uh, when he started working on this, but like this is this has definitely been in the works for at least like a year or two. Like it feels like it's been a while since like this has been announced, and like and like you could tell that Kishimoto has put a lot of thought into the world and the story, uh, which I really appreciate. Most definitely. Like, he definitely spent his time to really think this story through. He's losing all his lessons from Naruto, all the things he became more interested in, in terms of themes and the cultural references he wants to use for the series, uh, what he likes to use for his series. You know, he really merged all his interests together with this one and is really telling something very distinct and different from Naruto while still carrying, like, the same kind of vibe because it's covering similar things that Kijimoto is interested in, like an emphasis on especially a father-child relationship, which was huge in Naruto. And, of course, again, uh, focusing on different aspects uh, of Japanese mythology this time specifically buddhist concepts very interesting something that definitely makes me want to study the connections more as the series goes on and i'm very curious to see how kishimoto plays with those ideas Mm -hmm. so far i think my favorite chapters have been with uh, hachimaru and uh, and um, nanashi i thought that was a really good part of the story Mm -hmm. i think those were a good chapters to kind of contrast Hachimaru. It was good to have those chapters to have Hachimaru kind of on his own, like have his first like adventure and really show off what he brings to the table as a protagonist without the support of mentor figures behind him, like that he can hold up the series on his own and he can be an inspirational, aspirational figure like so many of the strongest shonen protagonists are. Um, but no, other than that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I really, I really, really, really liked it, and I can't wait to read more, so. Yep, I quite enjoy it. I think that this is a great uh, successor to Naruto, and I will be very curious to see where it heads into uh, in the future, and where it grows from here. And um, I, I, I hate to show my hand a little early here, but like, the rest of these, I'm... I feel very mixed on, to say the least. I will say that overall, I think this was a very weak round of jump starts, of new jump serializations. I did just praise Hachimaro, and I have enjoyed it more with each chapter, but I was not completely enthused by that first chapter, and that's how I felt with all the first chapters of all the series in this round. They really all got off to a weak start to me, and while, of course, I enjoyed them more with each chapter just because, you know, there's more time to, like, get to know characters, I do think that none of these series have really hit the ball running. But Samurai 8 is the furthest along the journey. Samurai 8 is the most well-taught-out and the series that has figured itself out and knows what it's doing. And I am more confident in that compared to the rest of these series. And especially Double Taisei to me feels like a series that 
completely changed the idea of what it wanted to do and what kind of series it is based on how jarring the shift is from the what the first chapter sets up to what the second chapter sets up and the series has been from thence on. And to go into the premise of Double Ties, like this series comes to us from Kentaro Fukuda, and it is basically a shogi manga that is about these two twins, these two separate personalities that inhabit the same body, Tai and Sei. Tai, as the character Tai and his name suggests, you know, he is the personality that appears during the daytime when the sun is out. And he is an aspiring shogi player. You know, they call him a prodigy. You know, he's a very serious-minded kind of person. He's very well-respected. He's very popular with uh, his peers, all that. And then opposite of him, the nighttime personality that inhabits the body when Tai goes to sleep is Sei, who is a lot more loose, a lot more uh, freedom-loving. He doesn't want to commit to anything, really. He changes his mind as what he wants to do, what career he wants to pursue, uh, because he's kind of flaky in that way. Like, he also has a huge skill for Shogi and played a, a game with his brother that, you know, has been kind of on a standstill for years, with, and the board of their game just stays in their room untouched, basically, for years. But... Basically, uh, Say goes out on the town at night and he tries to play his guitar and stuff, but he's not having much success with that, whereas Ray, you know, again, is prodi prodigy, really going up in the world of uh, professional shogi, uh, even though he himself admits that his brother actually is more uh, skilled than him. But because of an incident that happens in the first chapter where, you know, their body gets brutalized by some uh, ne'er-do-wells who were harassing their friend. Their body gets beat up, so when uh, Ty goes to play the game the next morning, you know, a, his professional match, he, you know, kind of collapses from exhaustion, and because he falls asleep, Say's personality takes over, he plays the game instead, and even though Say uh, loses the game... Ty has set it up in a way that the game is like his last match he had with uh, Say. So Ty and Say's last game. So Ty continues the no Say continues the game. Basically, he loses the game, but everyone is so awestruck that oh my god, he was thinking so much in advance. These were amazing moves. Like the people who don't know Shogi very well call it a disastrous move, but the real genius is like a. The rival character Haga, who is like this guy who who tortures himself, tortures himself basically. He straps himself in like bondage gear, strap things. Has his hand like chained behind his back. Uh, he's a real punk looking, emo looking dude. Even though he's actually kind of energetic. I thought he was in a straight jacket at first. I honestly couldn't tell. Yeah, straight jacket is probably a more accurate term to describe it. But anyway, Haga plays with uh, Ty the next day, you know, very inspired by the quote-unquote disastrous move that Say played at the game before. And then he loses the game to Ty, and he becomes really, uh, really frustrated. But he he 
he uh, becomes inspired that, you know, oh, Ty is such a good player. He's, I respect him so much. You know, we're going to be rivals. You better remember me because I'll be back for revenge. But, you know, Ty makes the mistake of uh, messing that interaction up because he forgot Haga's name. So Haga is very humiliated by this. He's very frustrated. And he... We don't really know what truly happened, but it seemingly is like Haga true Ty down the stairs, and Ty fell down the stairs. Uh, uh, it was a steep fall. He was bleeding afterwards, was hospitalized inside their internal mind where Ty and Say interact with each other, and which is a weary weird internal mind image. You know, they're both like in fetal positions. They have umbilical cords. It's a very weird image. But anyway, basically, uh, Ty is like, oh, say it hurts. It hurts so much. And then, you know, Ty uh, disappears in a blinding light. And then when the body awakens, it saves personality, even though it's daytime out. It's under a blue sky. And then no matter what happens afterwards, it seems that uh, Ty is never returning. So say is the only inhabitant of the body. And it's up to say basically to carry on Ty's legacy as a shogi player, you know, per- not to let his position prestige in the shogi world go down, not to let his career fall to the wayside until Ty returns. He still holds out hope that Ty will return one day. That's basically the idea of it uh, from this point onwards. And then so far in the story, he has not won a game but he has caught the attention of a lot of people because they recognize that even though he's been losing these games, he's thinking multiple steps ahead on a whole nother level and making really interesting and great moves. So he's left all his opponents awestruck. So he is gaining a reputation in that way. But yeah, that's basically how the story has been progressing. It is a very weird shift from the first chapter to the second chapter. The first chapter really does set it up. Like it is a story about these two personalities and they are basically trying to push each other to become better shogi players. But then it takes such a hard turn in the second chapter in which they basically get rid of one of the key hooks to premises that this was a story about these two double personalities, these two twins living inside the same body who, uh, you know, show up whenever the other falls asleep. They, it completely erases that premise and then makes it like two chapters in a story about carrying on the legacy of a lost loved one. And it's like a such a distinct and weird shift in stakes and content just two chapters in to make. Because I just feel like this is something that would have more impact if, you know, this was further on into the story. Like uh, when Cross Game revealed its hand that it was a story about like these characters kind of living on for the dream of a fallen friend. You know, that was that took a volume to get to that. To get that introduction out of the way, to set up that idea for the story, you know, get really let you know the relationship between the characters and really feel the pain of loss and understand what the emotional stakes of the story were. And then, like, in this series, like, it takes two chapters to get to that point, you know, I, I get tie into his relationship but i'm not invested in it because it's very nebulous like we don't really see how they interact that well uh beyond just this idea of you know they having different uh, perspectives on the world of different uh, personalities and that affects how they play the game of shogi and how they communicate through that game of shogi you know so it really really did not work for me like the twist that happened in the second chapter i just felt like you set up 
one concept for the story that was interesting and you removed it by the second chapter and made it something else like you can't the supernatural element of it is essentially gone now and there's still weirdness because haga is in his strap-on straitjacket thing whatever that's a weird character in this world of otherwise normal people but it just feels like the story has lost a hook, a lost an edge, and has become something that it doesn't have the weight to really tell. Like, I don't feel the loss of Tai, you know? So I don't really feel too invested in the idea of, say, achieving Tai's dream in his stead. Uh, it really fumbled the execution in, like, shifting the story into that direction, in my opinion. And while I am enjoying the series a little more with each chapter, just because it is a very readable series, like, the art is very clean, the paneling is very effective in what it needs to do in telling the story, it reminds me a lot of Takashi Obata's style of art in paneling in terms of how it communicates the story and oh, like yeah. how the character designs work and stuff. So I definitely got a lot of Hikaru Nugo vibes from that and all that. You know, it's very easy to make connections to the series because they're both a series that are kind of about like other personalities taking over for the main character and playing like games for them. And then that other character then getting the desire to become good at the game themselves and all that. But you know, it hard to go. Took like three years to get to the point where Sai had to leave Hikaru and Hikaru had to carry on, follow his dream on his own. You know, it it took over a hundred thirty ish chapters to get to that point. Double Taisei tries to kind of pass the torch, have a moment like that, uh, in two chapters, and it didn't quite sell me on that, but. I don't know if the series necessarily kind of has legs with its premise because, again, it just took away one of its hooks. It could have something with the character of Haga, who is interesting in how odd he is, and so there could be an interesting rivalry there between that character and Say, but they haven't done anything with it as of yet. But, again... Diable Taise, it is a series that, you know, it's very readable, but it is not, it feels the opposite of Samurai 8 to me, and where Samurai 8 really feels like it knows what it's doing, Double Taise, I don't think it knows what it's doing, I don't know what it, what it thinks it's doing. Yeah, this series is really weird, and I, I, at first I didn't really understand what it was going for, because, because, because the whole thing, right, even in the first chapter, like, I, I couldn't understand because, like, they, they make a big deal about how, like, Say is the kind of person who, like, will, like, get really enthusiastic about a new thing he's into and then, like, he'll just kind of, like, drop it at some point. Like, 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 like they mentioned how, <laughs> um, I, I forget all the stuff that they mentioned, but, like, they, they mentioned him, like, I don't know, get, like, getting into music and getting into this other stuff. He apparently had a YouTuber phase at one point, which I love that detail. I think that's pretty great. But yeah, I couldn't tell if, like, if he was, like, actively staying away from Shogi for some reason, or if, like... I don't know. Like, I, I didn't really understand his art so at first. So, the idea of this is that 
Say is better at Shogi than Tai. Like, Tai knows that Say has incredible skill. The reason why they haven't finished their game is because, you know, Say does not want to take away the one real skill that Tai really excels at. The one thing that Tai is really passionate about and really wants to pursue as his dream. Like, that's Say's perspective. Like, Say wants Tai to have that thing, so he does not want to pursue that thing. He doesn't want to play Shogi. He wants to leave, let that be Tai's path in life, and he wants to find his own different path in life away from that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, I don't know. This didn't really pull me in either. Like, I'm already not super interested in, like, Shogi in particular. Uh, I don't know. Like, Kitar- this this series is coming from a person who, like, you know, it's coming from the person who created Devilly Man. And for anybody who read the first three chapters of that back in the day, like, I don't know. I I feel like it's really jarring to go from their, like, from, from something like that, like a gag manga to this sort of, like, so something this realistic looking with like a lot of uh with with like a lot of like uh really out there idea i don't know it just it just felt really out there and i don't know uh I, I, like it's really hard for me to describe what about this didn't work for me but but i, I guess you kind of described it the best like it just it's i don't know it was a little it was a little too out there for me personally and i i agree that like I wasn't super invested in the characters or the relationships at all, so like a lot of that kind of fell flat for me too. Um, man, I don't know. Um, I don't think this is the kind of thing that I'm going to be reading weekly. Um, I I just don't think I have any more interest in reading anymore personally. I'll see where it goes. I read everything in jumps, so I'll be following it. But I don't suspect this series will have a terribly long lifespan. It just strikes me as something that has immediately very riskily uh, jarred its audience in the second chapter by throwing a huge... Sure, I mean, that's (laughs) generally how long the short-lived Jump series lasts. But again, it's just, it does strike me as a series that, ha, you know, it gave one idea of what its premise would be to a reader in the first chapter, but then it kind of confused those readers in the second chapter. And so now I don't know if the readership is more invested or is has it has lost that initial readership's investment in the series. So... Again, I guess it'll remain to be seen how general readers respond to this. But for me, it did really jar me. It did really kind of make me confused as to what the series is about now and like what the hook is for the series now like, and why I, I should be invested in what the series is now. So... We will see what happens with Double Taise going forward. But I guess we'll move on to Beast Children, which is a series by Kento Terasaka. And this is a rugby manga. And rugby has been absent from the pages of Shonen Jump for a long time. I believe it has been... Jeez. Uh, I know it's been a couple decades, even maybe, since the last rugby series in Shonen Jump. Maxi would know this better than I, but it is quite a big deal that Jump is publishing another rugby manga again. 
essentially, it's about this kind of short kid who really loves rugby. His name is Sakura. You know, when he was a kid, he saw a rugby game and he was enthralled by the like violence of it. Uh, he really was impressed by a guy called Mr. Beast Onotoro Iki. And, you know, he had an interaction with Iki where, like, he asked him, like, aren't you hurt getting all bruised up like that? Are you okay with crashing into your opponents like that? And he, and, you know, the Iki responds, oh, no, it hurts like hell and all of that. But, you know, that's the exhilarating part of it. It's exciting. You know, you knock your opponents down with anything you get. Crashing into each other makes rugby what it is. <laughs> the, the injuries are what make it fun. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, he seems like quite the masochist, but, you know, uh, misguided or not, inspires uh, Sakura to play the game. And so Sakura, you know, dreams of being a you know professional rugby player, you know, but at the rugby team in his school, you know, he's the only one who actually, like, takes it seriously. He has a friend who kind of is only on the team in a, in a spirit, but basically, you know, he's not really, not really a part of it. You know, he's just kind of using it as an excuse to goof around. He's really in the soccer club. It's like, you know, hangs out with Sakura, you know, and says in the rugby team to, you know, goof off and shark his soccer team duties. He's very lackadaisical about most things, it seems. Yeah, he seems like a decent enough friend. But yeah, yeah again, not not a very go-getter kind of dude. Not at uh, all, no. Not the kind of character you would really focus on in a sports series. Uh, where hot-blooded passions would fly. But anyway, a chance encounter leads Sakura to meet Iki's son, who, you know, has transferred to kind of the same class as him in uh, middle school, Yukito. Basically, Sakura wants to, like, play with Yukito, but, like, he rubs Ikito the wrong way and stuff. Uh, and, you know, they kind of get into an argument about whether Iki was someone to aspire to as a rugby player or was just kind of someone with misguided values for like pushing himself so hard so obsessed with rugby that like he died on the field you know obviously as his son I'm sure that uh Yukito has a lot of resentment for his dad for like playing so brutally and recklessly that he you know passed away and all that but that doesn't stop him from playing rugby they kind of challenge each other to a rugby game to kind of you know Sakura does it to kind of prove Iki's honor prove that his ideals are valuable whereas Yukito is like no you're you're dumb I'm going to show you how foolish you are they basically play this game where it's basically uh you know Sakura it tries to catch Yukito and it doesn't really go well, you know, at first, you know, he keeps getting knocked down and stuff, but, you know, keeps at it. And eventually he is able to tackle Yukito and uh, he manages to put him to the ground. And it's after this point that uh, Sakura finds out that uh, Yukito is uh, Iki's son and stuff. And, you know, he wants to go to the same school as him and, like, play rugby with him. And, like, so, uh, Yukito is like, you know, he should give up. He's, like, small. He's, he's not cut out to be in the cutthroat world of rugby and stuff. But, of course, you know, uh, Sakura has to stand up to some bullies, and that impresses Yukito. 
So Yukicho tells him about a school that he supposedly is planning to go to that has one of the best uh, rugby teams in the country and stuff. So Sakura is so excited. Oh, I'm going to be in a rugby team with Yukito. But it is a trick because Sakura gets into this school that uh, Yukito suggested. Hiakengagawa. But... Yukito is not there. Yukito lied to him. Yukito has not gone to the school for one reason or another. But at this school, uh, Sakura does join the rugby club and he learns that this club up until like four years ago was like uh, coached by the late Iki and the late Mr. Beast. And so they call themselves basically the children of the beast. Beast Children, where the title comes from. Uh, well, to clarify earlier, uh, he coached them f- un- f- until uh, four days before he died, basically. So, probably very recently. Uh, last couple of years. But anyway, basically Sakura has joined this rugby team uh, that was mentored by the person he looks up to, his master. So, now it's all a question of like, becoming a part of this team, like really building up a reputation, and then eventually, I'm sure, playing against Yukito in rugby. I'm sure that's the reason Yukito sent him to a different school than the one he actually was intending to go to, so they could play each other in the sport, or he could help raise Sakura's skills and all that. So, that's the series so far. I actually kind of like that setup. I don't know. I haven't really read any rugby manga, and the only other rugby series that I'm kind of familiar familiar with would be, like, All Out. And even then, I, I kind of fell out of that after a couple episodes. I'm sure maybe the manga's better. I don't know. I don't know. I As, as far as sports series goes, like, I'm, I'm not confident that this is going to last just because, like, it seems most sports series and Jump don't really last un- unless they really really like really gain some kind of following which from what i could tell doesn't happen super often but i mean i don't know i wasn't like in love with this but i liked it enough to where you know like rugby is not a sport that like i have seen in manga and anime a lot um so i'm i'm willing to keep up with this at least for a little bit see see if it goes anywhere interesting This is the series where the core story and, like, the emotional beats are enjoyable enough, but it is very hampered for me by the paneling and the art, which does not, to me, effectively kind of sell the emotional moments, and it kind of feels very flat to me. I do agree, yeah. And I just kind of wash over the pages and I really have to reread and like think about the construction of the storytelling to really appreciate the character moments whereas upon reading them the first time they are kind of like washing over me and I'm not really feeling them and then I have to really think I have to really really pay attention to what the story is to kind of really really feel anything So in terms of like the enjoyment of reading, like the readability factor, uh, it's not that engaging as a comic to me. I think I would honestly prefer to 
I feel like I get as much out of it just from the dialogue alone than I do from the art. And I think that is kind of a problem. Not to say that there aren't some good panels here and there, but I just don't feel that the rugby action, I don't really feel the violence. I don't really understand how they're playing the game. It feels all very nebulous to me. It certainly doesn't help that they have not explained the rules of rugby, really given a layout to low down. But like the action elements of this comic for the most part, are completely awash to me. Uh, the character designs don't really stand out to me. Like, I think Sagra in particular has a very generic design for a protagonist that doesn't really feel wholly unique to me other than the fact that, you know, this artist has a very interesting way of drawing eyes that stand out. But otherwise, I feel like the hairstyle of Sakura is a little similar to Hinata from Haikyuu and it definitely doesn't help that I feel like I uh, a lot of elements of this series I can trace direct parallels to other Shonen Jump sports manga. Haikyuu definitely standing the most obvious as a comparison point in terms of like the kind of thematic rivalry relationship between uh, Sakura and Yukito and uh, Hinata and Kageyama. You know, obviously in Haikyuu, they do end up going to the same school. So that's like the one divergent point here is that uh, Sakura intends to go to the same school as Yukito, but actually Yukito has tricked him. Whereas in Haikyuu, it was like they intended to go into different schools, but they accidentally ended up the same school. But like otherwise, like the setup, like the the, the arguments that are made, like the way the characters like kind of thought uh, and how they kind of grew to respecting each other, it felt really similar to that f- to me for some reason. Like this whole idea also of like this diminutive shrimpy character who wants to like make it big in a sport where height and size matter. You know, that is something that draws so much comparison to Haikyuu and a lot of other sports series as well. So, Beast Children feels like it has a lot of derivative storytelling elements. I think that there are some generally effective shonen moments that make the character of Sakura endearing enough. But, again, I don't think the art helps those moments. In fact, that a lot of times I think it kind of hinders my enjoyment of those moments because it distracts me from like what the story is and like what the character beats are and I have to like reread it to really feel that again so like again like just in terms of readability when I was comparing this to say Double Ties like Double Ties is such a messy story but it's so readable it's so clean and easy to follow the the character designs are distinctive enough Oh yeah. If not like if not like terribly interesting, like they're at least distinctive in the sense that I can I I feel like I I'm not I can pull these characters apart from a lineup. I feel like I can uh I can identify them very clearly within the world whereas with these children like I can get confused of like who is who, and I don't think that the protagonist has the most compelling or interesting or expressive design. I feel like when it comes to beginning of a sports manga, you know, there, there's always that moment in a in a sports series in the beginning where it's like, 
you know, where you're overcoming that first challenge, whatever it may be. And you have that moment where, like, you you have that moment that is worth dedicating a double page uh, spread to uh, in every sports series, I feel like. And as, as far as the beginning of Beast Children goes, um, that, that moment where, um, where Sakura ends up tackling Yukito, um, I thought was a good moment. It was clearly supposed to be like the most visually eye-catching moment because they dedicate a whole two-page spread to it. And while I thought it was good, I want to go back to what you were talking about, you know, saying that I, I agree that like, the, I I think I think personally the art is I think it's all right I think it's serviceable but like moments like that in particular so far I feel like have been good but they don't they don't resonate with me emotionally like that that should have been that should have been the moment where you know you're with this character and you really want them to succeed in whatever they're doing and they succeed in that moment but like. You know, I thought it was a cool page, but like I didn't really feel much from it. If anything, I really liked Yukito kind of like you know re- reflecting and looking up at the sky as he's sort of in a way like talking to his dead father and whatnot. Like I I, I thought that was probably the most like poignant moment in in the entire chapter, which which is kind of weird considering like I feel like the most poignant moments in the sports manga should be the more action filled moments, especially in the beginning. You know, when you're trying to showcase what you got. So I don't know. Th- those are just kind of my observations. Um, I-, I do agree with all your critiques. But like I said, I- I'm i still interested in this enough to kind of keep going with it. But I don't know. We'll just have to see how it goes from here. It could get a lot more interesting now that the team that he has joined has been introduced. And we can get to know those characters as well. I'm sure perhaps as the series goes on, uh, you like Sakura will become a little more distinctive looking. There are a few panels where there are some good expressions with him that, you know, look pretty nice. But like, again, like uh, I just feel like the design just doesn't stand out right now. It definitely will need some time to really become a little more stylized as the more this artist draws this character. But also... Again, the the comic storytelling of it just read very flat to me in addition to just the art not having the dynamism that I really uh, find grabbing in the best of shonen sports manga. So uh, I'm not too confident in the series right now, but it could grow into something bigger from here. Uh, So I will see uh, in the chapters to come where it might go. Um, all right, but I think we should just get to the last of the bunch, and that is Tokyo Shinobi Squad. Tokyo Shinobi Squad, the last of the bunch, and certainly the least of the bunch, for sure. <laughs> yes, uh, they really save the worst for last. Now, t- uh, just right away, the premise of the series drew a lot of heads uh, when the first chapter came out for being... Very startlingly and oddly and weirdly uh, nationalistic because the premise of the series is predicated on this idea that Tokyo has become the greatest prime center in the world because of globalization. Because the prime minister of Japan created these 
railways, a super hyperloops that connected the Japan and Russia and China to the U.S. And see, because they let all these different people from all these different countries into theirs, all this all this crime started uh, started going up and. All these terrible things started happening, and uh, Tokyo basically became a pretty shitty place to live uh, from here on there. And uh, that's a pretty troubling idea, to say the least. Yeah, it is. And, yeah, so, like, again, like, uh, the idea that foreigners caused, like, Japan, which considers itself one of the safest countries in the world to become incredibly crime-ridden, is incredibly problematic. It is not rooted in reality at all. Uh, there are so many trolls who make arguments saying, oh, no, of course, if you opened up uh, immigration, this would happen. But obviously, this has no bearing on reality. Uh, see, see, they they should have they should have built a wall and all their problems would have been solved. <laughs> just thinking about the premise logically, it makes no sense why Hyperloops connected to some of the most developed countries in the world would spike the increase of crime in Japan. Like, even if they were connected to underdeveloped countries, it would be obvious that it would not increase the crime in Japan. But just on that level, it's very strikingly odd that connected to China and the USA and Russia somehow caused tokyo to become crime ridden somehow caused a bunch of companies to come in and turn businesses corrupt to partner with organized crime as if that is not already happening already in the uh underbelly of society all over the world but also it just does not make sense this hyperloops idea how that has changed anything because already with planes People travel all across the world to every country, from every country. Uh, obviously, people come to Japan and they oftentimes might even move to Japan. Like, it's not like Japan might not have like a diverse ethnic population like in the United States, but they have still a, po a population from other countries they still have immigrants to the country you know so it's it's not like immigration isn't already a thing that is possible in japan it's not like planes don't already exist so how do these hyperloops change anything like these hyperloops have to be less convenient than planes for sure are they faster than it doesn't even make sense like if they are faster than planes like the speed of how people get there doesn't change anything so this entire premise is formulated on this nebulous idea this assumption that opening up japan's borders that allowing for immigration into Japan will increase the crime. It is predicated on this idea that foreigners are not to be trusted, that foreigners will bring with them crime and uh, upset the natural political order of Japan, the, the political stability of Japan. It's really rooted in these wrong-headed and completely bizarre ideas that are essentially just based on racism based on nationalism isolationism maybe exactly and even more ridiculous and very bizarre is this idea that you know these shinobi are like symbolic of 
Japan's cultural heritage, like Japan, Japanese people protecting themselves in their country. Like I posted a tweet about this on Twitter, but essentially making this comparison, like that the shinobi have been protectors of Japan for centuries. You know, this would be like if you were to set this series in the United States and with the same kind of premise, you know, you would have basically, you would basically say that these would be cowboys and essentially, the idea here is that it's like a youth, like a, this kind of political uh, action group, you know, that is like fighting to keep foreigners out and to like inflict violence on people they are distrustful of. Like essentially, those na- kind of nationalist group, groups, like in the U.S., like if you were to write the series instead of Shinobi, you would probably euphemize what these groups would be as cowboys. So that's the connection I was finding there that I found very startling. So like essentially, again, this is like really rooted in like uh, this idea that, you know, the Japan must keep others out. And again, is really all rooted in this nationalism and racist ideas that just make the series from the start. It leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. But then from there, it just adds on even more like upsetting elements like it's very misogynistic there's like a lot of gratuitous violence against women a lot of gratuitous hypersexuality of women that's very discomforting and then just the general shonen action elements like the basic concept of it is very not striking at all it feels like this generic kind of cyberpunk set premise that have been a dime a dozen in jump in uh, recent years that we've seen before the second chapter kind of just goes along with that. It like it basically restates the first chapter. It doesn't like reference any of the the troubling elements, but it basically is like it kind of shows that the series is really kind of very derivative in a lot of different elements. Like we've seen this kind of idea of like the secret group that protects like a city from bad guys or whatever. It just it just doesn't have anything unique or interesting to this idea. Like this idea of ninjas, they're ninjas because they have like superpowers. Like this, the main character has like electric powers. Like there's no real connection to the fact that they are ninjas at all, that they are shinobi at all, other than that I guess they have superpowers. So it doesn't really have a, much of an identity in terms of thematically, in terms of teaming, or in terms of like a unique like idea for its world other than an idea that is rooted in very a very troubling political perspective that has like consequences on real people that are harmful and dangerous uh yeah i mean i was i was only looking forward to actually checking this out just on the basis of like this was already turning heads uh last week when when it premiered i don't know honestly um it's one of those things where it's like i mean obviously we we've been saying this whole time but like the the entire setup for this series is again like you said rooted in ideas that are legitimately very harmful and i think we can both say that you know we don't agree with at all and i mean i don't know honestly with with how like controversial i had heard that this series started off I don't know. I was kind of expecting more out of it. I was expecting like I was expecting it to be more shocking or maybe maybe I'm just desensitized to to certain things. I don't know. But uh you know, I I can't sit here and say like, you know, oh yeah, this this totally brought something to the table because 
it didn't. There, there really isn't anything here that I haven't seen from other shonen manga other than this political stance it's taking. I don't know. It really... I, I liked certain pages and panels, I guess. I liked some of the action, but even then, like, I've seen better action comics. So it's like, I, I, I can't even, I, I can't say this really gave me anything new. I'm interested in seeing, I'm the, the, the most I'm interested in about Tokyo Shinobi Squad is like, whether its political ideas are going to actually be explored later or if it or if they're basically just a means to an end to set up this world which i'm getting the feeling that it's probably going to end up being the latter so i'm i'm not i i i i want the series to become something more cuz i think it could you know if it if it were written better but like i'm expecting this to get canceled pretty pretty soon honestly so i mean i don't know i don't i don't have high hopes for it at all it doesn't really have much of a hook to it again like it feels very samey to a similar kind of series before like i found the premise of the series weird like that's really all i found it kind of did kind of creep me out a little bit but like as the second chapter is kind of proven like it does it doesn't really have much thought behind it it's just rooted in this wrong perspective this very ill-informed perspective so i don't know like how zealous the author is and how committed he's he's into these ideas but like it already left a bad taste like starting off at a premise like that and it doesn't provide any new interesting ideas to latch onto it i i will i will say this though that um and I don't know if maybe I'm interpreting this wrong. I it could be, I don't know. But the the one thing that kind of made me feel better about this series in particular was that it seems like it's the kind of thing where the the setting and the story even with its problematic political statements like it doesn't it doesn't seem like the characters really I mean I don't know. It's weird because like the uh, the the, be- the beginning of the first chapter has this moment where what what's his name? I I already forget his name. The, the the main character, um, where he's like, oh well, so much for globalization, huh? And it's like, okay, I t- whatever. But that's a whole thing in and of itself. But it's like, other than that, like it doesn't seem like the characters really like so much believe in the political statements that the series is making and it, it it feels more like this is their world and then and they're just kind of living in it like they're just kind of making the best of it i mean there's some weird moments of casual racism like when n is like trying to pay uh jin with his with uh the thai currency bot like he's he like refuses to take the bot because he says oh bot's not worth it what it's the paper it's printed on in japan but uh, you can get that converted at a convenience store, and any convenience store in Japan will uh, will com- convert it to like good Japanese yen or whatever. But when you think about that, like you know, he's refusing to take this money that he himself could easily get transferred into Japanese currency if he really wanted to. So he has no reason to refuse ends money right there. Like this, to me, reads as a mean means of like just being a jerk looking down at another person's uh currency from their country uh saying no you got to conform to the way we do things here in japan you know you 
can't uh, abide by your own like rules here. You live in Japan. You f- you have to speak Japanese. You have to do what we want to do. Uh, you have to use our currency. All that kind of stuff. It's the kind of casual racism that people use to throw power over another group of people. And very common to see in real life. It's the same kind of sentiment as, you live here, you speak English. Or, I won't take my... Yeah, so... Uh, And again, I don't think the author really thought through that kind of moment. But this, these are the kind of moments that kind of show to me that uh, the author might believe in some very questionable things that makes me very uncomfortable, uh, puts an unpleasant flavor over the series. It does not, and really makes me uh, incapable of really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. I guess my thing is like, I'm obviously I, I disagree with the series wholeheartedly, but it's also one of those things where it's like, I don't know. I was kind of expecting it to be a little more shocking. Like if you're if you're already going to dabble in this kind of like if you're if you're going to dabble in this kind of political mindset, like, I don't know, like go all the way. Like it just feels really it just it just feels really like tame and samey and it, it doesn't have it just it like it's the kind of thing that you would read as like a, I don't know, like a teenager, like a 13 or 14 year old. And you think, wow, this really has something to say. And oh my God, I, I feel like such an adult reading this. And then when you, when you get a little older and like you revisit it years later, you're like, oh, this actually has like nothing to say. And it's, and it's all just bullshit. It's certainly not propagandistic, but it is reflective of real beliefs that again, can have some damaging consequences on people. And uh, you don't have to look too far back into history to see what thoughts like these can do in terms of real uh, actual consequences uh, politically. Again, it's also very telling that the villains of the first chapter, you know, they're all foreigners, established as foreigners, and they're based on kind of pop culture figures. Like you have the black character is called Mayweather. There is a character called Sina who is basically the singer Sia. So, mm. you know. Oh, and that's... there's a there's a mention of Justin Bieber at one point, And like, that was such a weird thing that like, I had no idea what to make of that. It's pretty random. Even in that bubble, there's also like a, what do you mean? Like in reference to his song. Though the caricature of Bieber does not really look much like him. No, uh, and, and it's like, there has been more than one incident with Justin Bieber. Un- unless something happened in the news and I just I just haven't seen it, I don't, I don't know what they're referring to at all. I think that they are referring to a made-up incident. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, if, if that's the case, that's... I mean, it's kind of random, but it's at least like a, okay, that's a weird thing, but I guess that's kind of funny, but that's that's kind of the only thing that got, like, any kind of, like, joy out of me, honestly. <laughs> I guess that's the one thing I'd be interested in seeing from the series, what that Justin Bieber incident is. I want Justin Bieber to be, like, a villain for an arc, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I could just imagine, like, this series getting like getting the plug pulled on it like six weeks before it's supposed to end and then 
Justin Bieber just kind of comes in so he can get so he can take revenge on the main shinobi guy. <laughs> it'd be it'd be stupid, but I mean, you know, it would be something positive that the series could be remembered for at least. But yeah, this this was this was pretty disappointing. Definitely uh, one of my least favorite new jump series in recent memory. Um, see, I I feel bad saying that like Samurai A is my is my favorite just because like clearly I, I almost I almost feel like that's not fair to the other three because it's like clearly Samurai Eight has had way 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 more time for it to kind of like for for Kishimoto to like kind of sit down and actually like really think about the world of Samurai 8 and like where he maybe like a like in general like where he wants the story to go um so I almost feel like it's not fair for me to say like that's my favorite one but I mean it's my favorite one so yeah I mean kind of by a clear mile again it's the most well thought out and sure of itself whereas the others uh they don't really seem to know what a kind of identity they want to carve out for themselves or they are just following through kind of the stereotypical stories that have already been told like this before or they have just some other weird problems with them Uh, it's not like samurai 8 is devoid of like any problems either it's just you know it's generally uh very well executed and you know, it seems to be going somewhere. It knows where it's going, so it's easy to get behind it. Despite its flaws, like, it still has a lot to offer, which I think is good. Um, if if I had a gun to my head and I had to, like, pick something out of the three, I would say out of the three besides Samurai 8, I'm probably the most interested in keeping up with beast children um just because i feel like it's i feel like it's the easiest to follow out of the three and i mean i i do agree that like you know the art overall i think could be better but i think it has the most potential to become better whereas the other two i think are just so weird that like they kind of turn me off yeah I mean, I will keep reading all these series, but I I enjoy Samurai 8, and I think that uh, Double Taize and Beast Children could improve and become more enjoyable to me. Tokyo Shinobi Squad, I don't think, will ever be able to recover from its initial bad impression and uh, be something that I will really enjoy, but um, I don't really feel that any of these series besides Samurai 8 have a lot of legs and a lot of uh, strength in terms of, like, being long-running series. Sustainability, more accurately. Bit of a downer note, but I I think, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our Jumpstart discussion. (laughs) Is it a downer note, or...? Well, I suppose we ended in a very lukewarm work. A downer in the sense that this was a pretty weak round of new series. That's right. But perhaps we can get excited again because as we were recording this discussion, it has been officially confirmed that Dr. Stone will have its first anime uh, episode screened at Anime Expo. All right. So 
That is something to get very excited about and very passionate about. But also, let's close off the show by discussing some of the things we love in our community shoutouts section. Um, might if I go first? I, I actually have something this week. By all means. Um, so I'll I'll, I'll kind of make mine short. Um, so I recently just got into uh into a podcast that uh I at this point I have actually listened to all of. Um I didn't think that was gonna happen. I think I listened to all thirty something episodes of this in like a week uh while I was at work. And uh that podcast being All Systems Goku. I had seen people mention this podcast kind of here and there. And uh I don't know, like I, I had recently seen more mention mentions of this from a few friends of mine and then that's that's kind of what got me to kind of like take a listen and for those who don't know what all systems goku is it's essentially a a sort of it's a podcast um by these two guys from giantbob.com they're majorly like a video game review news website and whatnot and uh uh it's hosted by two people from from the website who have very little who at first had very little knowledge on Dragon Ball outside of like some of the fighting games and um they basically decided to start watching Dragon Ball or specifically Dragon Ball Z through like Dragon Ball Kai um so they watched all of the initial run of Dragon Ball Kai and then move eventually moved on to Dragon Ball Kai the final chapters where they cover uh the Boo arc and uh yeah they basically do they they do like three to five episodes an episode of the podcast and they just kind of uh they they basically talk about the show as they make their way through it every week um currently they've done all the dragon ball kai um they kind of left it open to maybe come back and do like another series such as like the original dragon ball or super um or gt seemed like the thing they were the most interested in uh funny enough uh, just because they they kept people kept telling them about the reputation of that particular series. So if they do continue with GT, that that might be the only time I ever actually like watch all the GT to completion. That actually might get me to do so. But uh, no, yeah, uh, I thought it was a really interesting podcast coming from the perspective of two guys who have ne- who never grew up on on the franchise and have only like just gotten into it and had like no knowledge of the franchise going in and it was really interesting to kind of he- listen to them uh kind of talk about where they thought the story would go every once in a while and whatnot um i i, I think just, just in general i think it's a really interesting perspective to form a podcast around and i don't get to hear from that many people who have who have never been exposed to dragon ball so like i i find that perspective very valuable so if if you know if if you're looking for another Dragon Ball podcast, uh, or 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 even like a you know if you're looking for a Dragon Ball slash wrestling podcast, uh, this is uh this is the podcast for you. I I really enjoyed the entire run, and I I hope they come back for more. I do too. I love keeping up with All System Goku week to week. 
and seeing how their thoughts on the series changed from the beginning to the end. And I really do hope they come back for more. I'd love to see them go through the entirety of Dragon Ball. Uh, start from the beginning, go into GT, whichever they do. I just enjoy the show. I enjoy their banter. They have great chemistry. And oh, yeah. And a great ad coming up with great comedy bits and weaving in wrestling references. So it definitely was an incredibly fun time. And I'm hoping to see more very soon. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But uh, what about you, Lum? My community highlight is another piece on Yuri by Erica Friedman, and she published this one on Anifem, and it's a very interesting discussion that we kind of went into in our podcast with Erica last month. We had this conversation, is Yuri queer? Like, are the characters depicted in Yuri manga identifiably lesbian? Because Erica definition of Yuri is that Yuri is a story that is about lesbian characters that aren't actually that that lacks actual lesbian identity so like Erica kind of goes through like the cases of why you can identify Yuri characters as queer but also like the case for what does not make it queer, like kind of the the way that they frame the relationships, kind of how these stories are presented, kind of going to some of the, the tropes, kind of like the political context for Yuri. Also discussing kind of artist perspectives on whether they consider their works like queer, actually LGBTQ or not. So it's a very good article that kind of goes through both sides of this case and erica states her case for her perspective on yuri it's a great read and if you want a further you know supplementation on you know discourse on yuri interested in hearing more of erica's thoughts on like yuri as being about lesbian content but not wit lesbian identity uh as she mentioned on our podcast definitely give this a read because it's very constant comprehensive and very interesting but that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. Yeah, despite this round of jump starts being somewhat weaker than normal, um, I still thought this was a good episode. So I did too. I thought we had a pretty good discussion. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess do we do we want to talk about what we have uh, in store coming up for the podcast for the rest of the month? Or indeed. Because we have our long-awaited interviews with David and Caleb to look forward to. You can definitely expect both of those to be dropping this month because they are both edited, currently going through some approvals, but you will see those on the feed very soon. Um, I Either one of those interviews should be up hopefully a week after this episode comes out. That That's the plan anyway. Uh, we just don't know which one yet. Probably the David Brothers interview, hopefully. But yeah, um, I, I think I think that's about it for the show. And uh, I guess we can just start plugging away at our stuff. So uh, Lum, take it away. Where can the good people find you? You can find me on Twitter at LumRomayasha and on a variety of places as LumRomayasha, including Anime Revelation and Anime List. Wherever there's a LumRomayasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews and follow my other podcasts, hashtag LumSquad, over on all-comma.com. All right. And as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. 
I host a few other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, over at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. So if you're a fan of Gintama, please go check that out. Uh, we are on a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but we have a huge backlog of episodes that you could check out, again, over at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. You should also check out One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.com. Essentially, that is a podcast I record with my friend Doctor over at the SSA Network, um, the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast, about Detective Conan slash Case Closed. And so I really enjoy recording that show in particular, because uh, Doc and I are both huge fans of Conan. Uh, and if you are too, you should go listen to that podcast. Again, that's at onepodcastrails.com. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks uh, in general, uh, you can find every episode of the podcast over at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you are a patron over at our Patreon, uh, if you sign up at the $2 tier, you will get access to early select podcasts, depending on uh, when we have them edited and whatnot. Uh, you basically have the chance to listen to certain episodes early. Um, again, you can sign up for that over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Um, but you could f- also follow us over at facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on tumblr.com at uh, manga mavericks.tumblr.com. Uh, for all the latest updates on the podcast, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash Mavericks. We post all kinds of stuff over there, such as different news pieces we talk about, uh, different series and other manga we discuss and review, uh, even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash Mavericks. Um, email us anything at uh, mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what did you think about this round of uh, jump starts? Uh, which one is your favorite? Which one is your least favorite? Um, you know, uh, do you have anything that you're reading that you want to share with us? Uh, are there any manga that you want us to cover on the show? Any thoughts on whatever manga you're reading or the podcast can be sent to mangamavericks at gmail.com and we will read it on the show. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. You know, that really helps the visibility of our show and really just kind of helps us uh, gain more coverage and visibility overall. Um, So if you have the time, go do that. We'd really appreciate it. But yeah, that's pretty much going to be about it for this episode. So uh, until next time, this has been episode 90 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 91. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.